Got it. I'm in. I'm in. Oh. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words. But not some big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. You know, one of the reasons this is the best uh, podcast on the internet is that we <laughs> talk about anything. No other pod and, 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 podcast does that. No, not only do we talk about anything, but the one of the main things is we talk about things that we don't know anything about once in a while. Amen. Once and in a while. Yeah, yeah, only and, once in a while. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's that's a significant uh, skill, perhaps. Oh, so, uh, yes. Oh. And so, speaking of skills. Yes. What is a skill that people are surprised to learn that you have? Mm. So one thing recently that people were expressed surprise about, I was in a musical recently, uh, Elf the Musical, and lots of people from our congregations, of course, came and then but friends from the community, other pastors, they all came and they were all shocked that I could, you know, I, I wasn't blown anyone away, but that I could sing, that I could, uh, you know, that I had that ability to do, to do that. So it's not my, and I tell a little story about that. Actually, I, I think maybe I told you about this, but I have had severe uh, stage fright about singing specifically. So I just don't do it a lot other than messing around, walking around, you know, you burst into song, that kind of thing. So I do that, but never just up on stage by myself. Just, it's not my thing. I, in fact, the last time I tried it before this musical was like 15 years ago or something like that and I, I literally had a panic attack and I had to tell the person because I was helping with another kind of musical thing I can't do it so a lot of people were surprised that I could do it and I did it and I did it with confidence I didn't know there was no panic so that's really cool mm -hmm. there's no mm -hmm. panic um, there was none not this time how did you get there I mean I mean why yeah, I can't really explain other than the people that I was in the musical with were extremely helpful and supportive and kind. So that was helpful. I trusted them because I was with some people, you know, that I knew my wife included and but then just other people that I've done other things with. So so I don't know. I guess I just I either just trusted them or probably even more helpful. I have been in musicals before this where I was in the background. I could do that background stuff singing and i guess maybe doing that a few times just as that probably helped a lot too but this was my first time having that's actual good. actual solos and i and i was okay that's awesome yeah how about you what are what's a skill people are surprised to learn you have you know it's i i don't i that's 
I don't know. There's a mystery skill. Um, you know, I'm one not... of the things I okay. So one of the mystery skills that I do have that surprises people is that uh, it surprises teenagers oh. that I coach. They're they're surprised to know that I can do a uh, a um, what's it called crip walk. <laughs> I'm surprised that you can do it. And they Whoa. were so impressed because I even did it backwards. Holy cow! So, so they okay. They were like, they were like, they went, they went kind of crazy ballistic over that okay. one. It's like oh. I hear. Here's what I hear. I hear that we, uh, we have the makings of a Patreon, uh, pledge level. If you <laughs> will, every month, if you reach a pay a certain level. We will release a video of us doing something that n- people don't often get to see. I think that's a pretty great idea. <laughs> that's a pretty great idea, including a crip walk. So I, but, but that's only two things. Well, we'll, 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 and we'll I'm come gonna walk. More. I was like, okay, we got to. We'll eventually we do it. We'll you know. So what we do is we pick up new skills. That's there exactly. We'll do for this month's video. This is, in fact. If you will say the Patreon level is, you get to pick from, and we'll we'll have a list. Oh, that a we set have, of potential skills, skills to, to learn that we've pre-approved ahead of time. You know, oh. the list that we're like, okay, I could do that. Yeah, and, like magic and, tricks. And if it's or, a home improvement skill, there you go. Uh, you'll have to pay for uh, transportation, lodging. We'll come to your place, and we'll do. <laughs> you know, we'll 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 put cabinets in or whatever. <laughs> oh, oh boy, yes. No, Actually, I like that. that's okay, a skill cool. I have, so that one's too easy. You so. do? Oh, okay, good. Well, you I could teach to be me. a cabinet maker. So. You could teach yeah. me then as uh, that video. We'll do that. Hey, so okay. one of the things we began last week, and as we move into this next section of our of our um, the conversation, ice, the ice is broken. The ice is broken, and and um, so last week you you tried to like uh, keep me on track talking about some of the things, but. Uh, Christian nationalism. Yes. That I have learned, uh, become aware of, and, you know, how it is that we ended up getting to this place where we're having these conversations with these scholars on these yeah. topics. And, yeah. and so, you know, it's so hard to like put it into small chunks or sections, but one of the things that I thought would be worth kind of just naming, just dropping some names. So, anyone who's like interested in doing this, you know, you know, digging up some of that research, um, you know, through podcasts, um, online presence and social media, uh, some really great books. Um, there's, there's several scholars who have um, dug into this from the perspective of sociology, political science, and history. There's one who kind of walks the fence of history and theology. And other than that, there's really very few kind of in that theological world. Right. But the one of the one of the best out there, I would say best, maybe that's the wrong term, but most uh, <laughs> prolific yeah. is Sam Perry. And Sam Perry is a professor at, and I always get confused which one's Oklahoma and which one's Oklahoma State. But puts him uh, in a really unique place to be down there. It, he's in Norman, Norman, Oklahoma. Okay. But it puts him in there in that kind of the buckle of the Bible belt 
to be there in evangelical Christendom and, and dig into that. But Sam Perry, uh, Andrew Whitehead, uh, Philip Gorski, the three of them have um, worked together in scholarly articles, in you know, uh, uh, scholarly journals. And they've also uh, written some really good books. So uh, Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry wrote a book called Taking America Back for God. And then um, it was Philip Gorski and Sam Perry wrote a book called The Flag and the Cross. Mm. And those are really good books to jump in and get started. But the other one was another great historian to read is Kristen Dumay. And Kristen, spelled D-U-M-E-Z, Kristen Dumay or Dumez. <laughs> Um, yeah but i've heard i've actually said it that way i used to when i was reading it until i heard somebody <laughs> say it correctly but um uh, she's a historian she uh, is in this conversation uh, looking at the historical influences and her probably most um, recognized book is jesus and john wayne that's right and looking how some of these elements of machismo have really affected kind of a theological outlook that's been picked up by even even evangelicalism and especially um, uh, kind of a supremacist culture that hmm. uh, is largely it is male dominated and is largely white and carries this uh, kind of Americana flavor uh, aka John Wayne so right you know, when yeah, I was like, oh, oh good. We'll, we'll no, get no. back to it. Well, okay. So yeah. on her yeah, book. Yeah, on that book. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted, I wanted to go through this list of some, some scholars and there's more, there's more, there's always more. Uh, another one who I was just reading today and uh, listening to a, on a podcast is Kathleen Ballou. And she's a professor, I believe, is she at Harvard? University of Chicago. She's at University of Chicago. And she had written a book called Bring the War Home, which was really instrumental in explaining how do we have all these militias around where did all these where did they all come from and she narrates this this um kind of social psychological history of all these soldiers coming home from the battlefield from vietnam in a yeah. war that wasn't won yep. that was meant to get rid of communists so yep. when you get back home your job is to get rid of communists and so they didn't that. stop fighting Ingrained. And and uh, she's done a, a great job of of explaining kind of why did why what was the the ground that all this emerged from? Uh, Bradley Onishi is um, he just wrote a book called um, what's it called? It's called uh, something about preparing for war. That's it, preparing for war. <laughs> oh my goodness! And he describes his own kind of evangelical um, experience uh, coming to coming to faith in one of these places that is the breeding ground for white nationalism. But mm. he, as an Asian American, kind of has an interesting angle on all these things. And he has a great podcast called Straight White American Jesus. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, and, he's a, one. And, and then the last one to mention is, is Matthew Taylor. And Matthew Taylor is um, at the Institute for uh, Islamic, Christian, and Judea, uh, Judaic Studies that's connected with Oh, it's off the, uh, it's a university in Baltimore, but um, might've been a Loyola. Is there a Loyola, Maryland? But, yep. Um, Loyola. Yep. but he did, he recently did a series on the charismatics uh, stemming from PC, uh, C. Peter Wagner. 
and how there's a strain that came out of uh, Wagner's thought that is really into this uh, Dominion theology. Um, and it was a fantastic uh, uh, piece of research. So the other one who I would say is on the area, kind of on that borderline and actually bringing in some more theology is Jamar Tisby. And yeah. he's an African-American historian, but he's also deeply entrenched in, in, in the church. And so he has a theological angle that he views these things from. So I just wanted to throw out some of those names out there just to kind of give a, you know, yeah, you know, go look for these people. <laughs> Do we, are we going to have some links to those? Well, I was hoping you wouldn't say that because that adds more work, <laughs> but yes, yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably go with Twitter handles or something like that. There you go. There you go. Websites. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, the what the question I had about you may um was just simply like I wonder when I was reading cuz I haven't finished that book. I read part of it as part of a book group and then the book group kind of stopped for whatever reason and I haven't got back to it yet. But one of the questions I had was how much does pop culture reflect what we are or how much does it um Di uh, direct us towards being a certain thing or is it some weird mix of both or yeah or what and so I, I my thought was you know we have our religious principles and thoughts and sayings you know teachings of jesus mm -hmm. uh supposedly if we're followers of christ we hold those up as our ideals and then there's our pop culture though that maybe perhaps mirrors who we actually are and so that's why i was wrestling with that like who are so you know with that topic, um, holding up this book, which is next on my uh, books to read, uh, The Emergence of Sin and uh, by Matthew Crossman. And it's a book that um, that is mentioned by um, uh, Matthew Taylor in his study on the charismatic, it's called Charismatic Revival uh, Fury. Oh, wow. And emergence theory is this idea of like you really don't know where something started yep you know there's obviously this kind of dialectics you know two things going back and forth and eventually kind of a, a something new emerges out of it but nobody can pinpoint where it came mm. and so he uses crossman to kind of describe how certain things have kind of fueled a certain result but you really couldn't see it coming always and oh, so and so i think that goes back to that which is leading culture or or yep. the 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 one or two voices saying something and you know and the I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's interesting. Very good. Okay. Good uh, good insight there. Thank you for introducing us to some of those names. And um yeah, always more to learn, of course. So uh what do you want to tackle next before the interview the part two with pamela cooper so White. i thought i i you know one of the things that <clears throat> is hard to pin down is some of these definitions of what sure. um christian nationalism is yeah so i'd already mentioned uh, jamar tisby and uh he has a definition that i think you know i'll share with you and then go ahead and tell me what you hear and let's unpack it a little bit but he defines white he, he defines christian nationalism as Specifically, he puts the word white in there, and I think in some ways that's redundant because it is this kind of ethnocentric uh, dominion um, mm -hmm. that, that is there. 
but he defines it as white Christian nationalism is an ethno-cultural ideology that uses Christian symbolism to create a permission structure for the acquisition of political power and social control. Mm. There's a whole lot in there. Yeah, there is. Wow. Um, but what, but, but it, th- this ethno-cultural ideology, you know, those are, that's something that has shaped over history. Yeah long years it's, it's, not, it's not so much you really create hey i'm gonna do it i'm gonna create a new ethno culture <laughs> well but you know in some of my reading i have learned about how the slave trade um did essentially craft an yeah. identity that had never been really around before and that was the term white there wasn't that nobody identified yeah. themselves as white until yeah. the slave trade really bust, busted yeah. onto the scene yeah. And so, but, but what it does, it does, it does give a nod to a historical formation, Yeah, which, which uh, Christian nationalism has to look over its shoulder to the past. Uh, I mean, we all do, sure. but it's trying to figure out what it is that we're looking for, but it's the, it's the essence of um, in this case that, Oh, if you want to make something great, uh, we've got to go back. Oof. to the good old days right you know it was better back when you know it was better back during the i uh the the, the eisenhower administration that's when <laughs> everything was really really that's good. peak you know peak western culture yeah and, and really it really is in the minds of so many right you know it was the donna reed and leave it to beaver culture right um, and so that's a piece of that ethno-cultural ideology is looking at some of those um, periods of, of American history and going, yeah, that's when it was, that's when it was clear. That's when it was, the lines were well drawn. Oh, and that's, that's... Tis, Tisby goes into saying it uses Christian symbolism. And I think the key word there is uses. Right. Um, rather the, rather than allowing Christian symbolism that is traditional within the history of the church to shape us and give us, you know, form. It's finding symbols that you can use yeah. to prop up that ethnoculture ideology. And so that's where the Deus Volt um, symbol, you know, really comes in handy uh, into the into the um, the whole Christian nationalism thing. So you got these people running around thinking they're a new breed of crus- uh, crusaders, you know, yep. coming to, to visit the world a thousand years later, you know, 800 years later to you know reenact the crusades yep and so it's using that and and i think that's one of the things i really dislike about constantine anyway constantine was like the the amazing manipulator because before he crosses the bridge he sees the this image in the sky (laughs) you know use this this to conquer use this to conquer and it it takes that christian symbol he uses it for the acquisition of political power and social control and we've been dealing with the consequences ever since. And so, and so, one of the one of the hopes I think for Christian nationalists is is to rekindle the good old days, not only of Eisenhower but of Constantine. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, it's like, yeah, it was so much better back there in was ancient Rome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's interesting. So, more, you know, there's there's longer historical roots to that than than we even know. I think that people even pay attention to, of course. That's 
us on the kind of the outside. I imagine people wrapped up in like the January 6th folks who brought those things in, for example, they understood and knew, I'm sure. Well, maybe probably not all of them. I'm sure some of them were just like, hey, yeah, you know, I want to get us back to the 50s and God was good. So, well, yeah, there's that. And then then there is the more conscientious uh, appropriation of some of these symbols for a particular purpose. So, yeah, one of the things, have you seen the white flag with the pine tree in the middle? And it says something like aspire to heaven. Oh, no. Uh-uh. Okay. So that was one of the flags uh, at January 6th. Oh, wow. But but that was something that's more common among uh, charismatics. Okay. But it was it was taking a verse from the Psalms that was supposedly uh, an inspiration to George Washington on the battlefield. Oh, boy. And then <laughs> taking it as a new battle flag. Oh, no. You know, so it's kind of a, it's actually more of an ethno-cultural slash, you know, Christian symbol. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of a melding of these two. And and so that's a continuous thing. And one of the things you brought up, and I just don't know where to use it because I think it's amazing. So the the, the uh, Gadsden flag, is that how yeah. you say it? Gast- yeah. With yep. the snake. Yes. I really want a picture of Jesus crushing it, you know, with his heel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like, don't tread on me. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's crazy to yeah. me. That, so that yeah. whole symbolism, like, that's funny. And so, and so there is this picking and choosing of symbols. That's right. Now, and... so those those are kind of, neg- Tisby's is, a, is a, uh, a, a negative description of Christian nationalism. And it's from an outsider being critical of it and saying, sure. you know, this isn't a great thing. Yeah, uh, but but a, a significant definition or descriptions characteristics come from a guy named Stephen Wolf, who's a solid insider. Okay, and and his book on Christian nationalism is um, isn't a critique. He describes it as a manifesto of oh, what boy. he's trying to create. Okay, and just some of the things, and it's one of those books I don't want to read. And fortunately, um, uh, the Gospel Coalition did a really thorough. Uh, reading of the book kind of like, i'm gonna read this pray for me so you don't have to <laughs> um, but just some of the some of the things that stephen wolf says uh he says a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a christian nation as a christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in christ that is kind of his definition of a of christian nationalism which it doesn't really go into a whole lot of detail about well what that looks like but then he yeah. goes on in his book to say um that no nation properly conceived is composed of two or more ethnicities so just ponder that for a moment <laughs> okay um <laughs> so what do you do with those who are not of the dominant that's oh missing. boy. Do you have to golly man that's like my first initial thought was you know that's just historically not true. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, well, yeah, especially if you go back to something like oh book of acts uh well, yeah. you know Oh that yeah. is so crazy. So yeah, it, even so the Hebrew nation, right? Do you know the Hebrew you know this I'm sure, right? The Hebrew yeah. nation itself was formed literally they took on the like okay this is our ethnic identity Hebrew but they were literally a hodgepodge of Oh yeah. of everybody that was and a they ragtag kept group. hodgepodging all the way through that Hebrew story. Uh, yeah, through the <laughs> yeah. Hebrew Bible. 
Yeah. And so, yeah. so there's, so what, what's great about Wolf is he's like out front with it all. And that um, some other quotes out of that book, inst- let's see something about our instinct to conduct every life, everyday life among similar people is natural and being natural is for your good. So in, in back Ooh. in the days of church growth Ooh. stuff, they talked about the homogeneous unit principle. Yeah. Yeah. And Donald McGavin at his best would say, well, that's about, you know, people in the same economic strata or people who have, you know, similar, their kids are going to a similar school or, you know, they, they, they live in the same neighborhood. It wasn't meant to be a racial separation. Right. But it is this idea that, you know, people are alike, hang together tighter than people who are not alike. And so then, then Wolf will go on to say to exclude the out group is to recognize a universal good. Oh, oh, wow. And then further on, he'll say spiritual unity is inadequate for formal ecclesial unity. So if the church is going to be running the world, or at least the nation, having spiritual unity, people who are different, finding strong bonds in Christ, that is inadequate for formal ecclesial unity. Wow. Wow. And so the the thing about this is this this guy, Steve Wolf, writes out of a, a, a out of a publication house called Canon Press, which is in Moscow. Yep. Idaho. Yep know it well and and it's i think the name of the church is i think it's something like christ church christ church yes and um and it is it is a they yeah. they're scary they're scary like <laughs> they're frightening people yeah. Yeah, they're they're pretty scary uh they um they are expanding and growing too i mean yep. touching our all of our communities around here so they're touching all of our communities and with their and own TV globally. station, they their got, own college, publishing, all these things, cap, they're really connecting and they're, they're, they're blossoming. So there's a lot of people who are just willing to jump into that. And, and, and the corruption, just at the heart of it, the rot that goes so deep from the very beginning is overwhelming, but. Well, now, now there, there is the rot that goes really, really deep. And I think the really hard part is people not recognizing that. Yeah. And hearing something that they like and they go, oh, I like it. That's good. I want some of that. Yeah. But not knowing what the rest of the story is. To me, I hear, you know, to me, the rot and those things and the theological framework go hand in hand because I see that. Like if if I'm talking about dominion and whether it be, you know, culturally, ethnically, religiously, it also makes sense to me then that a lot of their rot has to do with abuse you know, that, uh, took, took, um, uh, that happened, you know, essentially among some of their leaders and teachers and whatnot. I mean, yeah, it just makes sense to me. Oh, well, you'll, you'll overlook Part, go, those things, but yeah. some people overlook those. They don't see them as connected, but I do. I mean, to me, yeah. you know, if your theological framework involves <laughs> lordship of specific people over other people over and authority, other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just makes sense to me. Ah, yeah, and uh, and so, yeah, it's and it's 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 uh, it's pervasive and it's growing. And now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you you hear something that sounds like it's Christian faith based, yeah, it came from an unexpected direction. And maybe I this happened to me when I was younger, a younger Christian, and I'd hear that and go, Oh, that sounds 
Um, Sounds interesting. Nice. I, I want to know more. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. And and it's easy to find these little things like, you know, I would love to have a more just and kind society. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, you got my attention. How do we do that? Well, we make sure we exclude all the people of color. <laughs> yeah, no, no. You know, and we stone the people who are, you know, who are, you know, it's like, no, no. But you don't find that out till you get further in. That's right. And it, then maybe your your defenses are down enough or you've at least sipped enough of the flavor aid to yeah. uh <laughs> yeah to, to, to be, be, to be to sucked it. in. Yeah. And so one of the so one of the things that um that uh, Sam Perry and looking at my books here, I think it's Andrew Whitehead in their book Taking America Back for God, is they look at these different classifications of people. Mm-hmm. And you have these people who are full in, they're 100% behind it. They just buy into it and they love it. Yeah. And, and those are, um, the, let's see, they call them the, the accommodators. They really built, bought into it. They've accommodated their whole worldview to that. Then there are the ambassadors who are a little bit more on the edge. Uh, they're, still in, they're still in evangelical mainstream society. But they are walking over to the other side too. Mm. They go both ways. And the thing right. is they're they're trending further into the Christian nationalism. And the thing is, uh, recently Sam Perry came out with a, a paper and uh, it was titled Mating Calls, Dog Whistles, and Trigger Triggers. Ooh. This is an essay? It was a it was a, a journal article. Okay. And in that he looks at how do these people who were kind of dancing on the edges of Christian nationalism, but not fully in it, how do they, how do they get attracted to it? How do they get brought further into it? And then how do they respond, you know, once they're in there? Right. And so he, he asserts that there in this language, there are these kind of um, mating call words, these terms that when people start using it, you go, Oh, that's the kind of word I use. Yes. And I've, 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 I've thought about that. And when people start using those words en masse within, mm. within a certain group of people, you begin to draw closer. Now, what he talks about these mating calls, like um, one of them, for instance, is if you're a Christian, you're a Republican. It's creating that kind of equation. Yeah. Yep. Um, he has this one uh, as a as a quote or one statement from somebody says our politicians have really abandoned us uh, to a large extent, and Hillary Clinton, you can forget about her. So somebody says that, and they go, "Yeah, Hillary, uh, she's a horrible <laughs> person." Right. And then you have this this um, opposition set up. Christians have been abandoned, and Hillary's a terrible person. And you begin to say, "Which side am I on?" And that, that's almost like a, Those two a connect. Piece of, that's a little thing that's thrown out there to see if it's attracting you inward, you know, coming right. far, further. And then he talks about the dog whistle as a quote here. Uh, Biden's following of the radical left agenda, agenda, take away your guns, destroy your second amendment, <clears throat> no religion, no anything, hurt the Bible, hurt God. That was a, that was a Trump quote. Ooh. And that's more of a dog whistle, because now it's telling you these are the specific things that we're going to take up and in charge with. These are the things that are are we are against. Oh, wow. The other one was more environment, kind of a general feeling out. Um, and so the how do you how do you 
activate all that they call that he calls that the trigger mm. and so you activate that so you can say that the assault on the capitol on january 6th is a progressive statement for our faith because wow. the godless people are trying to take away our our guns and our god and, you know and mm -mm. and and so we're triggered to act and, and so we're, in a, fact we're a, obligated to do so we're obligated to do so and so yeah. the so sam perry sees no surprise at the at the uh, insurrection of wow. the great number of christian symbols that were there oh yeah in fact i'm pretty sure if they weren't there you know he would be shocked yeah that would be and, and one of the one of those mating calls that that bothers me i think it's really a popular one is the claim of states rights yes and the other one is educational uh freedom which is it's across the country in different uh, school boards where we're for the child not the system right and both those things go together because states rights emerges only in the conversation historically to hold on to enslaved human beings that's right that's, and so when it pops up again from time to time it's usually around the issues of segregation Ugh. and so when schools were desegregated white christian schools popped up as a choice for the right. child that's right and so again there's if i hear somebody talking about um supporting children or vouchers in education or states right to me those are mating calls yeah that's fine and try too. to find people who come in and then we'll take those ideas a little bit further and with that dog whistles well is are they gonna is the pack gonna come together you know once you whistle are they gonna are they you're gonna have a dog pack mm. and then come the triggers we need to act and so i think that's one of those things that i worry about that i kind of think i see from time to time around um yeah. places where we live and um Again, I'll put a link to that article, but it's hard to get because it's a it's a scholarly journal. Usually you get it only through like uh, colleges or someplace you got ProQuest or something like that. But right. very good article. Anyway, I went longer than I wanted to on that. <laughs> You're good, though. That's good. Good information. Good to know. All right. And so, yeah, now we'll segue into uh, the second half of our interview with Pamela Cooper White. Uh, yeah. Last week was a lot more uh, kind of like about defining definitions and uh, that type of uh, topic but this one is a lot more about now how do we how do we talk to each other how can we speak to people who have maybe fallen for those dog whistles or are are um being courted by those mating calls correct and and i wanted to read a a little part in her book um that i'm not sure if it was in the recording on this section or where it was but she um she has this one passage in, in the book where she, she writes, um, mental health professionals, this is a quote, mental health professionals are indeed frequently confronted with the question, how do you reason with a Trump supporter? The quick answer to that query is you don't. And that's the mm. end of the quote. But her response to that quote is, I disagree. Mm. As a therapist, I believe in talk under the right conditions. I will adopt the emergency medical language of triage here Oof. to suggest that the first step for, uh, toward conversation is to determine whether fruitful conversation is possible. The first point of discernment is, 
am I the right person to have this conversation with That's this good. person? That's good. And the key point there is, I mean, you've, I mean, I've seen it on social media a lot. You know, how do you reason with stupid? You don't, right? You know, <laughs> and I've heard that apply to how do you reason with somebody with, you know, what seems to be crazy political ideas? Well, you don't. Her point, her, her response is, well, you do. You do. Yeah. Uh, you may not be the right person. Yes. Uh, there may be, and it may and not if, be the right time. If you're making those posts, you're not the right person. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's how it goes. <laughs> so I thought that was, I thought that was a really um, helpful point that she makes in that. Oh, that's good. So here comes the second uh, part of our interview with Pamela Cooper White. Across the great divide, sick of human hearts, reduced to reds or blues. Still, oftentimes, my thoughts of you. Cardboard cut out lies so much simpler if parody is true. It's so easy to believe it's really you. It's so easy to believe it's really you. I refuse to buy into this tired narrative. Anyone doesn't run he's a fool I believe together we can build a better bridge Spends the breath and starts connecting me to you it's so hard to just So what, one of the things that I've been looking for well there's a couple of things so at my my pastoral work is largely working with a small congregation as a church plant, trying to reach out mm. to neighbors, get to know folks. We live in an area that is so powerfully um, red, hardcore, conservative. Mm -hmm. um, there's such an abundance of folks moving into our area from California who are coming here because they want to raise their kids to be able to use guns. And they know they can do that in Idaho. Um, the, the number of shops, you know, selling um, assault rifles just continues to, to grow. And it's very hard to talk to these people because it's almost, you know, from, they're almost like in another world. And, and one of the things you have in your book is how to talk across this divide and it's it's a very strange cross-cultural kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. even as, you know, I I I didn't grow up here, but we've lived here now for 20 some odd years. And it feels like even though we're Idahoans, you know, pretty much, we feel like the margin, you know, kind of like we're on the margins of the cultural conversation. And it's hard to speak to that majority culture sometimes so breaking up through that divide is is a little challenging you know so yeah yeah um, well hey you have a master's degree from the east coast you're you're by definition beyond i know, I know. right yeah. and worse yet i'm a mennonite i'm a pacifist i don't even wouldn't know how to hold an assault rifle so <laughs> well you know just before we get into the talking across the divide yeah. just the issue of guns um of course guns are part of 
a subsistence culture in a lot of rural areas. And, mm, yeah. um, you know, here in, in central Pennsylvania, too, I remember when my husband was first starting as the president of the Gettysburg Seminary, and he was told that the start of hunting season was an unofficial holiday, but yeah. he suspects that um, everybody on the maintenance staff and uh, would be gone yep. <laughs> because yep. that was just understood that, of course, you know, that's what you do. Yep. And hunting was always the justification for having guns. And right. it has morphed into something different now, uh, which is much more the emphasis on guns for protection than guns for hunting. Right. I mean, you do not need an AK-47 to shoot a deer. You just don't. Uh, but yeah, we blow up the go to the paranoia yeah. yep. that's a part of this whole movement. And it also goes, of course, to the threat against masculinity that people feel. And uh, interestingly enough, women have many women have taken up this sort of uh, pseudo masculinity stance as well. And so you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and other political candidates doing ads with machine guns. Um, it, it, that all kind of started with Sarah Palin. Right. But this um, clinging to white male authority and guns being a, a great symbol for that, uh, along with the anti-abortion rhetoric, which is about control of women's bodies, of course, you get this witch's brew of paranoia going on. And uh, so guns are a perfect oh. way in which to express that. Yeah, it makes me wonder as a pacifist, should I create a gun club so we can just take guns back to hunting? Yeah, we're just trying to shoot deer. We're not trying to protect ourselves against the FBI or whatever, whoever we're afraid of, you know? Yeah, well, I don't know. State. I mean, are, are do pacifists <laughs> shoot deer? <laughs> oh, we, yeah, we we hunt. Yeah, we hunt and fish and yeah, okay. well, well, when I pastored in Kansas, it was the same kind of story. It was, you know, when the beginning of deer season came, schools were closed. High, the high school <laughs> was shut down because everybody go hunting for a day or two. And, you know, most of the, most of the you know, folks I knew in um, my congregation, at least a lot of them, you know, when they're out on the pasture, they'd have a, they'd have a gun in their car because usually you don't know if you're going to step on a rattlesnake. Um, uh -huh. And so there, right, there was right. this, this awareness of guns as a tool to either hunt or to uh, take care of your livestock, but it really wasn't to fight off the, you know, the, right. the masses or whatever else was going. It wasn't a fighting tool. It was a farming tool kind of, or a harvesting yeah. tool. Yeah. It's surveys now show that when people are surveyed about why they own guns, um, hunting is far behind protection now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't really understand that in some ways I would like to find somebody who hasn't made that decision to get a gun to protect themselves and hear the thought process of that. What, what's leading them to that decision, you know, and, and enter into that conversation. Um, when I went into a gun, a gun shop for part of my research, and I was talking to a young woman behind the counter and I asked her, I said, as a, as a Christian, well, first of all, I asked her what she thought would be the best gun for me. And, you know, she, she showed me some 22s. And, uh, and then I said, well, you know, as a Christian, I have qualms about this. I said, what do you think about that? And she said, 
oh, it just, it gives you the safest feeling in the world. It's just, it's just, the, it's the greatest thing. <laughs> so it well it, kind of, kind of sidestepped the whole Christian thing. And just like, it was trying to reassure you. It sounds like. Well, yeah, I mean, she was trying to say to me, having a gun isn't evil if you think that. I guess I might have said, you know, as a Christian, I don't believe in violence. And she said, it's not, that's right. And she said something like, it's not about violence. It's about feeling safe. And it's just the best feeling in the world. So that's, it's, it's, it's um, one of the phrases that I ran into reading uh, uh, Brad Onishi. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's a sociologist of religion. He just wrote a book called Preparing for War. And he uses the phrase uh, narrative, uh, crisis narrative, and then crisis logic. Mm. So if you, if and it's, you buy into this crisis narrative or you participate in it for long enough, and it kind of, you, you kind of address that as you go into these, these settings where eventually you pick up the beliefs of the, of the, the group, uh, but then you that develop this crisis logic that if you're in that logic, conspiracies seem reasonable, having a gun for personal uh, feeling secure, you know, uh, having those feelings, all those, all those bits and pieces of logic seem reasonable. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, exactly how do you, what's, going and, on. And what's the leverage? Do you argue with all the little bits and pieces of their, their logic, or do you need to find a way to readdress that whole crisis narrative that's giving birth to it? What's, what's that point for, I don't know, turning somebody around? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that that takes us to the question of how do you talk across the divide? And I I make a very clear point in the book that when someone has gone too far down the rabbit hole, um, argumentation, it will not work, period. And so that is not the approach. Yeah. And uh, actually, argumentation with anybody at sort of any stage of involvement with this is just going to raise defenses and make people feel like you're condescending to them or right. you think you know better. And, you know, that's not a way to win arguments in any situation. Um, I you, have do... a, you, have a, you have a great quote that I really like in the book that kind of speaks to okay. that. And it's <laughs> uh, page 104. Mental health professionals are indeed frequently confronted with the question, how do we reason with a Trump supporter? The quick answer to that query is you don't. And then you say, I disagree. <laughs> right. Well, I disagree uh, that you can't talk to Christian nationalists. Right. I think that you can talk to people and many of us have people in our families or in our churches or other parts of our community, our neighbors who subscribe to this. Um, and there are soft Christian nationalists who believe some of it and harder Christian nationalists who've really gone down the rabbit hole and believe in, you know, frankly, delusional right. theories. But what I say um, is under every circumstance, you have to build relationship first. You're not going to get anywhere by attacking their point of view. And if you really can't talk about it, then you shouldn't put yourself in a position where you're going to be subjecting yourself to microaggressions yourself or even more aggression than that. And or by per perpetuating a conversation, you're feeling like you're you're actually colluding now with a narrative that you feel is unethical. Right. So there are times when you just simply have to not talk about it. 
And but that's not the end of the story. If you can't talk about it, then you channel your energy into education and advocacy for social change. So where do we put our energy around this? And that's where I think, you know, what you're talking about with the crisis logic, um, there are plenty of places, whether we're clergy or religious leaders or we're therapists or we're citizens, you know, in any context that there are plenty of places where we can mobilize educational strategies by having discussion forums and other kinds of things, or also getting out on the street and protesting when grave injustices have happened. So channel your energy. I think if there's a, a, a green light, as I say, you have to build and maintain relationship and find some common ground. So there's some trust and rapport. And then you have to listen more than you talk. You have to really understand where they're coming from because most people actually don't think they're voting against their own best self-interest as a lot of liberals like to say, they don't, they don't believe that. They don't believe that they're stupid. <laughs> they, um, they have their own reasons for why they believe what they do. And so if you ride over that and don't listen to them, then they're going to feel dismissed and they're going to feel that you think they're the deplorables. And, and you end up proving their point. You, you end up validating their fear or their. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That you're just somebody who disrespects them. Um, so respect and kindness, not trying to fix them or heal them or correct them. And then I love, um, there's an act, a longtime feminist activist and anti-racist activist, Loretta Ross, who has been talking about calling in rather than calling out. So yeah. rather than calling somebody out in a moment for saying something that you find offensive, especially if it's a, if it's a first encounter, right. you know, and humiliating them in public, can you take them aside and use an I statement and say, you know, I found that really hard to hear because, and then explain your point of view, but not just going for the jugular at, at every instance. And then, um, yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's a nifty situation, you don't know how far you're going to be able to carry a conversation to just listen more than you talk and try to exercise some empathy, try to understand what it would be like to be in that person's life. And how those circumstances might indeed make them more likely to believe some of the Christian nationalist rhetoric. And then if relationship allows for it to share your own perspective, not as a correction, but as an alternative point of view. It, it, it comes down to that um, feeling when there's like I, I've, I've done quite a bit of congregational consulting in the past, especially around issues uh -huh. of conflict and, and uh, using conf conflict transformation. Um, approaches and it's there's this feeling of here's the right answer that's worth you know going to battle over and then there's also trying the other side that's well here's this uh process of love and empathy that might be more vital and actually see things in a different way than the idea of looking for this purity or this right answer and uh, kind of the idea of love co covers a multitude of sins. Maybe I don't need to say you're wrong. Maybe I can just develop some empathy, get to know somebody, build up a level of trust, and we can you know, chart out a journey together. And I think that's one of the things that in our culture, it seems, and I don't know if it's social media culture or 
it's this feeling like we need to have a rapid, immediate response. We need to call out rather than to call mm-hmm. in. And that, mm-hmm. you know, we're, I, we're really in a call out culture. And, and yeah, well, and food. let me say too that, you know, I think we have to work on our own human tendency to split everything into this Manichaean battle between good and evil. And if you're not on the side of good, you're on the side of evil. And I mean, those of us who are progressive can also fall into that. But by no means are we also, I don't want to make it sound like we have equally okay positions in this because I do good people on both sides, not, not going that way. No, I'm not going down that road. Um, I think, well, what he meant, by, what Trump meant by that was was deplorable. Exactly. There and that he was talking about a very extreme situation of um, essentially a pogrom uh, that happened. But I think there are people who we would consider to be good people who get captivated by these things and to try to hold their humanity in view while recognizing that there are some truly reprehensible things that they have come to believe. So that's not our neurotic projection. There are some truly reprehensible things that are said by Christian nationalists. And so that is the real moral challenge, I think, is how do you how do you keep your eye on the humanity of the other person with respect and at the same time not just sort of pretend to dis- to ignore the really, truly very bad stuff that the Christian nationalists represent. In, in that statement I hear, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to I was going to say, Loretta Ross also talks about calling up, which is a different thing than taking an individual person and taking them to task. Calling up is when you, you're basically calling out the leadership and you're, um, because the leadership is where the crux of all of this gets continued and perpetuated all the time. And so it's quite right that we should use whatever legislative powers we have and investigations and criminal procedures to identify people who have actually broken the law by doing these things and hold them accountable. So we need to hold our corporations and our government and our church leaders accountable for things that they say and do because they represent a whole institution. And that's a different level of um, resistance than when we're sitting at Thanksgiving dinner with uncle Joe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a both and we have to do both things. We, we, and, you know, part of my witness, I feel like in my life is that, I mean, people, if they look at anything I've posted on Facebook or in the public, I, they know exactly where I stand. You know, my family members who don't agree with me politically, well, let me, that didn't come out right. Those family members who don't, (laughs) most do, but those family members who don't, they know perfectly well what I think. They don't need to have a sit down, drag out conversation about it. And those are people that we generally don't talk about politics because we want to maintain the relationship but they know perfectly well what i think and i know they respect me as a person they really do and so i think of that as sort of the witness over the long haul that if they respect me as a person and they think that i'm reasonable and intelligent and i have 
I come by my views, not neurotically, then maybe over time they might want to consider, well, you know, maybe she has something to say. It's, this is always a long haul prospect. You're not going to change somebody's mind overnight. So the curing the, the thing of white Christian nationalism isn't probably going to get done next month uh, or or the next election cycle, or it sounds like it is a long haul because, well, it was never gotten rid of in the past. All it's done is. I mean, these things go in waves. They actually do go in waves all across American history. And, and one thing I've been thinking about more recently, even since the book is the ways in which I make mention of it, but I've been thinking about it more lately that, you know, the, the genocidal origins of our nation and the traumatic origins of our nation, you have groups of people who are fleeing persecution and then they're coming and they're persecuting other people. And that whole history gets literally whitewashed by talking about their heroism. Right. As a nation of people, are we also still in a kind of a traumatic state? It's not, you know, in the history of the world, America's a pretty young nation. Are we still caught in a kind of a post-traumatic denial of the truth of who we are? And so we're always looking for some expression of purity and innocence about ourselves. And that's, in a lot of ways, that's what critical race theory is trying to undo. It's trying to say, we aren't trying to blame any individual person right now for anything we're trying to do is look at the whole truth of our history and not just partial truth of our history that's romanticized or or sentimentalized. And that until we do that, I don't think racism is really going to be eradicated. I think it will go underground and come back up. I think the same thing about a lot of the, the other aspects of what Christian nationalism represents. But maybe to close, just to say that I really believe from my research that Christian nationalism isn't Christian theologically at all. It is white supremacy cloaked in rhetoric. Yeah, and the the um, is theologically, yeah, I wouldn't call it Christian. But I think the other thing that's a bit sad as a as a practicing Christian is there is an element of the Christianity that we have practiced in the past that is in that Christian nationalism. And I think that goes back to not so much the fundamentals of the faith, as I would say, you know, as a, you know, theologically, but there's culturally aspects of our Christianity that are brought out to their most, to their worst, perhaps, in Christian nationalism. The theological conversation is one that I'm hoping to have also with uh, with another person is, you know, when we look at the theology of Christian nationalism, um, Jesus doesn't really matter a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that the, the the rhetoric tends to jump directly from their perception of a wrathful God in the Hebrew Bible all, all the way across uh, to the apocalypse and yeah. the gospels. The substance of the gospels, love, justice, um, love of neighbor, um, healing, all of those things are just left out. Uh, and but I think you're I think you're making a really good point about a lot of this also has to do with with class, with culture, with tradition, with geography, and you know the waves of revivalism that have happened across the American history, um, which also taps in, again into the group, yeah, the group enthusiasm. You know, it's hard to resist that. Right. Um, 
you know, people, but people are nostalgic for an aspect of that that strips the roots of racism and anti-Semitism and um, masculinism away and just remembers the beautiful parts. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking some time uh, out of your schedule to have this conversation. Uh, you did mention Facebook. Are you are you active on social media so people can keep track of what you're thinking and what you're doing? Uh, I am on Facebook, although I've kind of been on it less lately. But yeah. I have a page where I try to um, let people know when I'm speaking again okay. uh, or to provide them with links. Uh, so, yes, right. I can. I, I am easily Googled also. People, yeah, people can find. Yes. And I did find, I think I did find some YouTube videos of, of you speaking somewhere. Oh, yeah, they're out there. Yeah, yeah. Actually, not on anything to do with this, really, except that social justice is always going to be there, whatever I'm talking about. So you'll find That's that. Excellent. Very good. Yeah. Well, this has been a delight. I really appreciate it, Craig. I Well, I as I said, I really appreciate you spending the time uh, uh, with this uh, project that we're working on. Wow. Another good, good one. Good job. Good job. Good, good interview. Good, good discussion. Uh, now you did not use our classic close of interview questions. The five. It is questions. so, it is so, <laughs> I am so sad. And that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Just remember for future ones. Actually, oh, I think you remember. You've, I think you've. Uh, I think you have a, some pre-recorded ones already too that maybe you've forgotten, but that's all right. Yeah, I just. I, we'll I, reclaim I, that. We'll reclaim yeah, that. I, I think I'm just going to call them up and say, "Hey, uh, there's, <laughs> there's another question. Um, yeah, a few questions I forgot to ask, but, and these are so I, important. So, and there's a little. There's there's a part of me that I, I was just so. Um, have you have you ever met like a really famous person and then you don't know what to say? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, or somebody who's like super important and you don't yes, want to there like, you go. Mm -hmm. you know, trivialize their life by yeah you know, wasting it. <laughs> and so, and so the next next uh, uh, set of conversations uh, we have was with uh, Drew White, and he was like, "Wait, you got a you got an interview with with Pamela Cooper White? Wow, that's cool." And I was like. <laughs> It's like I didn't know it was supposed to be a hard thing to do, but I was already just the gravitas of of yes. of, uh, of her as a scholar. It's like, well, I don't really feel like asking the five questions. <laughs> <laughs> I did. It, it, it. it kind of crossed my mind, but I thought, well, you know, this stuff is just way too serious. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. Okay. Uh, well, nicely but, done. But good, I think maybe I'll, I should I should call up Andrew and just uh, call up Drew and just say, hey, uh, Drew, throw, um, let's throw these on. <laughs> yeah, tell me about. We'll see what happens. That's fine. So, hey, one of the things we talked about last week, kind of on a whole different um, level. I mean, yes. I don't know if it was leveling up or leveling leveling down. <laughs> we talked about three um, wagers, kind of, uh -huh. regarding uh -huh. the Super Bowl that had nothing to do with with the um, with that with the score. Yep. And so, um, I'm guessing you watched the Super Bowl. I did. Did you? Uh, yeah, it was kind of weird. Uh, for well, what do you mean? What do you, oh, okay. Did you have I, guests I mean, over? I, no, no. I mean, I didn't really watch it that closely. Okay. Um, and I was doing some work in the kitchen and 
I, I, I still have kind of mixed feelings about football. Right. And oh, uh, I get it. Me too. And I had just listened to an interesting podcast. Um, Audie, Audie Cornish, I think it is. She used okay. to be an NPR yep. uh, reporter and now she's on CNN and she has a podcast and she was talking to an ex-football fan and to an ex-football, uh, ex-NFL or an NFL veteran who's a sports uh, uh, personality in Denver. And both of them have like sworn off the NFL and they're like sworn off football. And it was a really interesting conversation. And the, the question was posed, is the NFL going to go the way of boxing? Because mm. there was a period of time when yeah, everything was, was about boxing. That's it was right. all about Jack Dempsey, Joe Lewis. Muhammad I mean, Ali. Was, was t- and even, even up into the Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. era, you could still have Friday night boxing on TV, just like yep. we have Monday night football. I mean, it was all there. Yep. And you had... Howard Cosell, even as obnoxious as he was, oh yeah, kept it on everybody's mind. Boxing yep. is the thing. Yep, that's and, true. And Howard Cosell gave up on boxing when somebody in the ring, and I can't remember who the fighters were. Was it was it Holmes? Holmes. Anyway, he he hit somebody and it killed him. Yeah, a death in the ring. And after that, Howard Cosell, I'm done. I'm yeah. done with boxing. And yep. the question is, well, is the NFL going to go to the way, go the way of, uh, you know, that eventually go the way of boxing that somewhere along the way, people are just going to be too fed up with um, yeah. the injuries, the, the CTE brain scans that show yep. 93 to 99% of all football, you know, all, football virtually players all, have. <laughs> yeah. all. And it's like, yeah. so that said. I I didn't know I didn't after having listened to that podcast I really felt like I don't know if I should even I know. watch this I know I know but I did pick it up in the halfway through the third quarter oh okay so. oh, it was an exciting game it, I mean other the finish was fizzled after the good build up yeah. but that the yeah so how describe the the emotions behind the last the last minute yeah so the. It was a tied game, 35-35. The Chiefs had the ball and we're driving down the field and we're within what we call the red zone, 20 yards going in. And uh, I believe it was a second or even third down. They were within the 10 yards at this point. And a holding call was made by a referee on a play. And it was holding. It was pretty yep. small. It was, and, t- and, it was, it was and small, but I it was there. the name of the athlete, but he was a, he's a DB. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Bradbury. He even admitted, he even yep. admitted it the next day. Yeah, he was. It was yep. holding. It was holding. Um, but a lot of folks were well. Initially, some were like, "That's not even holding." But then the more overwhelming cry was, "Well, how are you going to end a game on that?" I mean, a ref, you know, like, shouldn't you know? Yeah, keep you know, unless it's so ridiculously over the top obvious, you let them play and you know add a little drama because they would have kicked a field goal. They would have been up thirty-eight, thirty-five. But plenty yep. of time left to at least have a drive, or even, you know, Chiefs still could have won, but just with a dramatic defensive stop rather than three kneel downs and a field goal, and you're done, <laughs> and it's over. You know, it 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 just ended with a thud. Yeah, it was such a and, good buildup and, and great and game you, by the Chiefs. You know, three oh, quick scores to to get it to that point. And then, could you imagine if it were, you know, the um, 
you know, if they had to do a, a tiebreaker, um, you know, what, yeah. what's the new overtime. system they're using? I, I can't remember oh, yeah. what's the new system they're using. Yeah. So in overtime, it is that you can't end it on just the drive and a field goal. You know, uh, yeah. it's not necessarily for, especially in the playoffs, they both teams get a chance to uh, right. possess right. the ball. So, yep. Yep. And uh, so it could have so, been, could have been an exciting finish. Yeah. But <laughs> and the other side of that is, you know, that every single offensive lineman on both sides. Oh yeah. There's every, a, I every play. Every play I was holding. Yeah. You know, they're, they're always <laughs> keeping those hands in so they can get, you know, right yep. up there. Yep. 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 Anyway. So, yeah. So there's an argument to be had for, you know, Hey, you, well, why not? If you're going to call that one, why aren't you calling all of them that are that tiny? And, uh, and the other side is uh, it's not that it wasn't, it not it it was it was okay for to make the call. Yes. But do you make it at that point? In that moment, exactly. In that right. moment. Yep, yeah. Yep. 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 And there's and a little bit of becomes, philosophy involved yeah. in officiating. Hey, but, but nonetheless, Andy Reid won. Yep. And did you see the color of the Gatorade? I did. It was purple. Yeah. Which had a plus seven fifty. It was one of the lower uh odds. Because purple's <laughs> and, not a you know, it's a distinct flavor, purple. So it, uh, <laughs> so it, it doesn't get a, used quite it's often. Grape-ish. Yeah, it's in that realm. Whereas the other ones, most many of the other colors are citrusy. So it's like a, a gamut, a broad spectrum of flavors. Whereas purple's pretty much it's in this. So you either like it or you hate it. A broad spectrum. That almost sounds like a like an antibiotic. <laughs> I know. But but uh, I was looking at an AP photo of it. Yes. And the AP photo was captioned Andy Reid uh something uh gets the water cool gets gets a water bath or something like that. Water? <laughs> that's not no. water. No. Come on. It's like it's like I don't know maybe they, maybe the journalists didn't think they could say Gatorade without I, I, maybe, royalties. Maybe. But don't I call doubt it, it water. Water. Sports drink. I wonder if it. Yeah, there you go. Sports drink bath. Was it? At, I wonder if it is actually Gatorade. It probably was. I think they have the rights well, or something. I think it was in a Gatorade cooler. It was an orange. Yeah, it's orange. orange. Yeah, yeah, gotta be a Gatorade. So, yep. It's gotta be. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that's interesting. Now, so I missed the very beginning of, uh-huh. of everything. So how yes. long did did Chris Stapleton go? You know how long? Yes, one hundred and twenty-one seconds. And the over/under was one hundred and twenty-five. So he was under. Wow. Yeah. All right. Have you heard yes. his rendition since then? Lots of people loved it. In fact, so we had a guest uh, on our have had a guest on our podcast, a good friend of the show, Anthony Smith, used to be called the uh, po- postmodern Negro back in the day was his uh, Twitter handle. And uh, he is a city councilman now in his city and does great work. But he well, raved about the national anthem because uh, Chris Stapleton. Have you? You've. I'm sure you've heard Chris. Oh Stapleton. yeah, 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 yeah. So very soulful singer, mm-hmm. and that's and that was what really drew him. He's like that 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 country boy's got some soul. That's good. Uh, yeah. Well, so, so did did, did he say anything about uh, Shirley Ralph's uh, rendition of "Lift Every Voice"? Yeah. Also, uh, uh, more subdued comment though. Maybe didn't like okay. it as much, but yeah, no, I, I or, liked or it. Or maybe it was I, just I, being gentle and respectful. I don't know. But sure. I, um, <laughs> yeah, but boy, um, here's what's here. Here's what here's what's funny to me. So I'm in a lot of sports forums, groups, and right. Facebook pages, and whatever, and Twitter lists, and whatnot. 
I was stunned at how many people didn't realize that they've been singing Lift Every Voice and Sing now for three years. It Not just at the Super Bowl, every football game since oh, no. the fall of 2020. Everyone's like, what is this? I've never heard this before, but they've played it at the last three Super Bowls. Well, they, it, 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 yeah, it, well, it's really helpful when there's, you know, people going nuts about it. I mean, he's kind oh, of they were angry. There's so head. many angry people. And I'm yeah. like, first of all, first of all, how many were there were that I know are Christians were upset? And I'm like, somebody just saying a hymn. Yeah, somebody just sang a hymn on national TV. What in the world is wrong with you people? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, yeah, that's where the nationalism, like, white Christian. So, and and I missed the whole halftime show. Oh, it was. I liked it. I thought it was very good. Yeah. Uh, Rihanna, Rihanna, Rihanna. I've learned that's actually Rihanna, Rihanna, or something like that. Rihanna. (laughs) Rihanna, not Rihanna. It's Rihanna. So uh, she was essentially just her plus her dancers. Very so subdued in that sense. You know, usually the Super Bowl halftime has guest, guest, guest. But it was just her. 100% just her. And I actually liked that because it was her first ever live performance in almost five years and so that's it was amazing just, so it's just her wow plus but but she did tease a special guest before uh in the couple weeks leading up to and so everyone was trying to guess who the special guest would be and it turns out it was her unborn child that she's carrying she's two months right pregnant so yeah that was her announcement Publicly. And I didn't. Did you? See, I didn't see any commercials. I I was just too busy doing stuff, and I just didn't. We watched, yeah, we watched a few. Um, you know, of course, we saw the he gets us ads that uh, right. have been much talked about. We saw those. We saw. Um, what were our? Lisa had a favorite. Now I can't remember which one it was. Hmm. Yeah, I can't remember now. But they didn't. There were no outlandishly ridiculous ones. You know, usually the Super Bowl has some outlandishly ridiculous ones that really just even if you hate them you can't stop talking about them yeah i I don't uh, really remember any of those since i missed most of it i didn't see any of those so yeah yep i don't none that i really jump out although i did pay attention to the ad because you brought it up how um uh budweiser didn't buy all the uh alcohol ads so there was room for one and it was three and one it was uh miller cores and blue uh pat not paps blue ribbon a blue moon blue moon all together did oh really yeah because they're all owned by the same yeah yeah. conglomerate (laughs) and so the joke of the ad was hey we can the the uh i think it was the uh, cores guy got on was like hey for the first time in 30 years we get to have an ad in the super bowl and then the miller guy jumps in and goes except it's a miller ad and they fight a little bit over you know whose ad it's going to be and it's a it's a little kung fu and then finally at the end a hand comes in and goes no it's a blue moon ad and it puts the the blue moon uh uh, logo down there and that's it that's the end of the the ad oh that that actually sounds creative that's good yeah it wasn't too bad wasn't too bad yeah yeah i I missed i missed uh i missed a lot of that (laughs) <laughs> i guess it's okay yeah it's um, all right and i didn't notice any of the um 
Oh, the or maybe I did see one of them. The he gets us. Yeah, we saw two of things. them. I think there's yeah. two of them. Yeah. And and I have trouble feeling bad about those. I mean, I, I know. I mean, I'm not really thrilled with the guy who's you know the people who's sponsoring it, but. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I, and that's where I explained to Lisa actually, cause she had heard the pushback from uh, evangelicals, conservative evangelicals who didn't like it and the reasons why they didn't like it. And I was like, Oh, oh but really? Did you know, but did you know that also progressives didn't, don't, don't like it <laughs> didn't, either. Didn't like it because of the person. So it must it. be something good then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah. What to think of it. Yeah. It was interesting. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it, I, Carla and I had that conversation. It was like, you know, it makes me think of that passage where um, oh. the Apostle Paul is in prison. And, you know, they're talking about people preaching out of bad motives. And he goes, oh, I'm just happy the gospel gets preached. Yes. That, like, okay. Right. I, can, I, I, can that. Get... I will tell you, actually, I will tell you the commercial that did get the most buzz. And it was so clever. Uh, very clever. It was for, you know, the uh, free, I think it's free, streaming platform Tubi. T-U-B-I. Oh, or... oh, that one, that one I did see because I thought something went wrong with the TV. I exactly. Or it drove like... me nuts. I'm like, what's happening? Am I sitting on the remote? Who's on the remote? Exactly. And, and I guess everybody was having that exact same reaction. And so yeah. people have been talking about it ever since. And it actually, I don't know when they hold these awards, but it won a what's called a special super Clio award is the best commercial of the game. So they must've announced uh, it right after the, and Clio is kind of like the, yeah. the Oscars so of advertising. That's actually fun to go through uh, kind of the history of the Clios is mm-hmm. some of, some of the ones from the past and it's good to yep. see the history. So. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. That one jumped out because that was, that might've been the, the, uh, that might've been the ad of the game. Just so clever in the timing Wow, that got me. Yeah, it just yeah, it it caught 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 my attention, but that was about it. <laughs> so hey, you know what? We're we're we we got to wrap things up here. We got to do it. Let's do it. So um, and you know we got this really cool new thing to keep us on track with our agenda. Yeah, but but sometimes forget to advance. Look it. at it. <laughs> pay, actually, pay attention to it. But you know even. If it makes us just think about it a little bit, it does its job. Because there you go. Here we are. <laughs> so do you do you have a do you have a, a piece of wisdom for uh, for our two minute warning? A way to close out? Oh boy, two minute warning. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what. Um, this is more personal and local, but maybe we can talk about it as a, a broader issue. We here in Clarkston, we are pushing to um, pass a bond for new school. The school is over 100 years old, the school building. It has uh, 53 separate entrances to the to the building. Oh, my gosh. So it's a severe security issue. Um, and it has been, you know, uh, reno- not renovated, but repaired, repaired and repaired and repaired, you know, all the po- holes and patches and whatnot. Uh, the student population has grown something like three times, you know, uh, for what it was built <laughs> built for. So we're trying to get that through. Uh, wow. And I bring it up because I don't know, maybe it's uh, you brought up education a little bit and people's 
just the connection that people yeah. have with national identity, states' rights, individual student, you know, oh, that pops up in that, you know, in those school conversations all the time. It does, it does. So, I last night I was at a school board, and oh, the overwhelming talk because it, it, to get to the bond to get to be voted on, it has to first be proposed by the school board. So, last night the school board was holding its official vote on do we want to pass this on to the right. And it did pass unanimously and everyone there was positive support. There wasn't one negative nice. uh, comment about well, it. So that, was, so that was, was that in Lewiston or is that Clarkston? Clarkston. That's Clarkston. Clarkston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. But they have tried the deal. Here's the thing. This is what drives me nuts about it. It has by an overwhelming majority been passed several times, but it didn't meet the threshold of whatever it is. It's like, it's gotta be 70 one percent or 67 percent or whatever it is and it's always like um it always gets over 60 percent, but it never reaches the (laughs) and so we're hoping this time it does and that's yeah and that's that's happened down here and then it has to get put up for another bond another bond and eventually eventually you know it'll, it'll So the biggest argument to people, and I think that holds enough people back, like, cause I think there's enough people who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm for it, but you know, I'll just, I won't vote and we'll see what happens or it's not an ultimate concern. And honestly, I don't want my taxes to go up. And that always is the, the biggest complaint, right? We're, it, it'll be too expensive and our taxes go up, but every time it gets more expensive, it doesn't get cheaper. Yep. It never will get it. Well, and it's, eventually happen. it's going to have to be replaced period. It'll burn down or fall down or whatever. So, so one of the things when the time comes, um, when, when the new building does get built, mm-hmm. uh, it's good. It most likely will have a little bit of green engineering in there, yeah, you know, yeah. some low cost lighting, some ways yeah. to save money. Mm-hmm. And probably some kind of uh, sensitive computerized uh, lighting system that knows when to turn on, when to turn off, when a room is being used, when it's not, you know, because there's those motion sensor kind of lights, you know? Yep. So just make sure you choose the right uh, engineering software. Because did you hear about the the school in Massachusetts? I think it's called, it's Minishog Regional High School. No, what happened? So they built a new school, I think two years ago and, or August of 2021. So they built a new school. And they don't know how to turn off the lights. Oh, no. And so ever since it was open, you know, for the new school year in 21, August of 21, they haven't been able to turn off the lights. Oh, no. Now, there was a fix for the computer system, but the fix is made in China. Oh, no. And because of the supply chain backup, they couldn't get the computer thing to come up, you know, to get that or whatever the piece was. And I guess once they got it, they couldn't work with the software that that runs the system. And so it's one Oof. thing after another after. So this Oof. school has had its lights on. And I think there's 7000 light bulbs Holy cow. Um, that are that are running in this entire school uh, in order to save money. But, you know, it seems <laughs> like it could be a, it could be a great place for in, insom, you know, insom, in, insomniasts. Wait, <laughs> you know, anybody with insomnia. To come and hang out just go hang out yeah. <laughs> oh no that's but, okay yeah anyway, so pay attention to that all right i'll bring it up i'm on the that. i am on the um yes for yes campaign i'm, I'm okay a so, small part so make sure it. you bring that up okay <laughs> <laughs> all right so i think that's probably enough for today all right and uh as a as a closing out i'm gonna play one more little tune at least a little little verse or two in here it kind of fits in with what 
Pamela Cooper White was talking about, I think. Love it. Love it. He's love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. But the world is not his love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. Lord, we don't need another mountain. Mountains and hillsides enough to climb.